the Christian faith is full of paradoxes. A paradox is when you have two statements that seem at first to contradict each other, but we affirm both and we believe both don't ultimately contradict. For example, we believe God is three and we believe God is one. We believe Jesus is God and we believe he is man. We believe God is perfectly in control, sovereign, and yet we believe we have responsibility and and freedom. We believe there are human authors who wrote the Bible and we believe God is the ultimate divine author who wrote the Bible. And another one of the paradoxes in the Christian faith is we believe that the Christian faith is both challenging, difficult, and it's simple. For example, in Matthew 7:14, Jesus says, "The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and few find it." But in Matthew 11:30, he says, "My yoke is easy." And in the passage we looked at last week, Jesus says, you know, you can't experience the kingdom of God unless you enter it like a child. So the way is hard, and yet his yoke is easy, and children can enter. See, that's a paradox. And uh, today, we're going to discover in the passage we're looking at why the Christian faith is both challenging, difficult, and at the same time, simple. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. If you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin reading in verse 17, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look at this story, I pray that you'll help us to see and even feel the incredible good news of the gospel. And I pray that we'll respond appropriately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So notice the difficulty of the Christian faith in this passage. 
Look at verse 24. Jesus says how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 27, he says it is actually impossible. But then he turns around in verse 21 and he says, you lack one thing. Only one thing. It's that simple. Just one thing. And so I think we see in this passage several ways that the Christian faith is both complex, challenging, difficult, and yet at the same time, simple. And I want to point out several. First of all, notice the difficulty and the simplicity in recognizing who Jesus is. In verse 17, this man runs up and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We call this man the rich young ruler. Uh, why do we call him that? Because in his story is contained in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. In all three, they tell us he had great wealth. Uh, Matthew tells us he was young. Luke tells us he was a ruler, probably a ruler or a leader of a synagogue. And so you put all those together and we have the rich young ruler. Now I want you to notice he has a relatively high view of Jesus. Verse 17, he ran to Jesus. A ruler, a leader, you know, kind of a leader in the community running to Jesus. We see something of his humility. We also see his humility. Verse 17, he knelt before Jesus. He got down on his knees. Look at the humility of this man. Verse 17, he calls him good teacher, a very honorable title. Good teacher. Right? You don't see many people calling Jesus good teacher. Uh, fourth, notice he's asking spiritual questions. Like he's the one initiating really good, tough spiritual questions. Like he's asking the million dollar question. How do I inherit eternal life? You know, sometimes you have a hard time talking to people about spiritual things. They don't even want to talk about it. This guy not only wants to talk about it, he initiates it, and he gets right to the heart of the matter. How do I inherit eternal life? Notice also he's a moral guy. He's kept all the commandments. So I just want to point out, this is a seemingly perfect candidate for just about any organization you might want to be in. Right? This guy checks every box. Young with energy, wealthy, got resources, respectful, ask good questions, humble. I mean, good night. Like, I'm, you're almost shocked Jesus didn't say, please come be on our team. Like, we could really use you, you know? These disciples, look at them. They're like arguing about who gets to be in charge and who gets to be the leader. And this guy's coming with humility, moral, money, young, you know? And the disciples are just shocked when it doesn't work out. And Jesus basically sends him packing. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. It didn't work out. Why? Because Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, store up your treasures in heaven, and then follow me. And the man can't do it. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sad. He couldn't do it. And one of the reasons he couldn't do it is because he didn't have a right view of who Jesus is. He had a high view of Jesus, a very respectful view of Jesus, a very honorable view of Jesus. He had a high view of Jesus, but it wasn't high enough. He, he didn't rightly see who it was that he was talking to. One way we see this is in verse 17, when he calls Jesus good teacher, Jesus responds and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I don't think Jesus means by this, hey, only God is good, you called me good, I'm not God, therefore I'm not good. That's clearly not what Jesus is saying here. So what then is he saying? I think he's saying, you just called me good teacher. Let's unpack that a little bit. Let's get down really deep to who I actually am. 
Only God is good. There's no one good. The Psalms teach that. There's no one good but God alone. Do you believe that I truly am good? Do you really truly recognize that I am the good God? And, and the man proves that he doesn't. In the end, the man proves he doesn't really believe that Jesus is the good God King standing here right in front of him. And I think if we're honest, this story bothers us. This is a difficult story. Why does Jesus build this wall and make it so difficult for the man to experience salvation? Why does he do this? You know, why, why does he seemingly create a really hard, difficult hurdle for this man to have to jump over in order for the man to experience eternal life? If we're honest and we're reading it with an open, honest mind, I'm guessing we all feel that, that tension. And I just want to respond to a couple answers. First of all, I do want to point out this is very unique. In the Bible, you don't have any other place where God requires a person to give away everything they have in order to follow him. So this is not normative. This is not like everybody, if you want to be a disciple, you have to do what Jesus called this particular person to do, right? The, the Bible doesn't teach that having money is evil. The Bible doesn't teach that money is evil. The Bible doesn't teach you have to give away everything in order to be a follower of Jesus. But I do want to point out the point, if God calls a person to do something, you do it. No matter how radical it is, no matter if you're the only person in the Bible who does it, no matter if you're the only person in church history who gets asked to do it, if God himself calls you to do something, no matter how unique or difficult or challenging, he's God, you're not, you do it. When God calls Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, it's not an option. Wait a minute, time out. Why am I the only person in the whole Bible who's going to get asked to do this? Right? Well, first of all, he's not the only person in the Bible who's going to sacrifice his one and only son. But secondly, God provides, doesn't he? When God calls Abraham to do the impossible, he's testing Abraham's faith. Abraham proves his faith, and God provides for him what God demands of him. And I believe Jesus is doing something very similar here with the rich young ruler, testing his faith and ultimately going to provide what he requires, but the man doesn't pass the test. And I just want you to see, just notice how difficult it is for so many to truly come to Jesus in a saving way, to truly follow Jesus. There are so many people like the rich young ruler who can't do it. There are many people in churches across the world who are like the rich young ruler and they can't do it. But they're in churches because they tend to be like the rich young ruler. They're, they're good moral people. And they're not anti-Jesus type of people. The rich young ruler is not anti-Jesus. He has a very high view of Jesus, a very honorable view of Jesus. He's not unreligious. He's not atheistic. He's not immoral. But he's, here's the problem. He's not willing to come before Jesus recognizing Jesus is the God King He's not willing to come before Jesus and be undone by Jesus. He wants to come to Jesus on his terms. And Jesus says, you can't come to me on your terms. You have to come on my terms. You have to come and be willing to be undone. You have to come and be willing to be born again. Like new start, start all over. Everything you've built and amassed for yourself, undone. Notice how difficult it is. And notice that Jesus won't accept it. Like we so much might expect Jesus to say, oh, for you, you know, maybe I'll let it slide. <laughs> You're so sincere, seemingly sincere and a good guy and boy, we could really use you. 
These other guys are just arguing all the time about who gets to be in charge. We could really use a guy like you. You seem nice enough. Come on, let's just, maybe we don't have to put up such a high hurdle for the man. Right? Maybe a little lower, maybe half, still half of what you have. Jesus is not willing to allow people to come to him on their own terms. Jesus says, you come to me on my terms or you don't come at all. And Jesus sends the man away sad. Notice how difficult, nearly impossible it is to come to Jesus. But also notice how simple it is. All you have to do is recognize he's God, you're not, and you do whatever he says because he's God. And, and, and you trust him for it. It's very simple. He's God, I'm not. He calls me to do it, I do it. I hope you notice the difficulty and yet the simplicity just of who Jesus is. Secondly, I want you to notice the difficulty and the simplicity with recognizing what it is that Jesus does. We've seen Jesus is not merely a teacher who's coming to teach us some things about God and point us to God. Jesus himself is God here among us. And if that's true, why? Like, why does he come and do this? Why does he come and live this life? Why is he here? And the answer is he's here on a mission. He's here to do for us what we can't do for ourselves and only God can do for us. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, with God it's possible, with man it's impossible. We can't save ourselves, so he came to do it. That's why Jesus is here. He's here to bring salvation to us. He's here to save us, to rescue us. And I want you to notice that's what this passage is about. It's about the salvation Jesus came to bring. Look in verse 17. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what the story's about. Verse 23, 24, and 25 all reference entering the kingdom of God. Verse 26, who can be saved? That's what the passage is about. Who can be saved? Verse 30, he references the age to come and eternal life. So this story, I love this story because it gets right to the heart of the gospel. It gets right to the heart of the Christian faith. This story is, gets right to the heart of why Jesus is here. He's here to bring salvation for us. And there's two requirements for us that, that we see here in this passage. And there's sort of two sides of the same coin. In some ways, it's, it's, it's one requirement, but there's two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith, Mark 1.15. Repent and believe. Two requirements of us. First of all, you have to recognize your own sin and your own need. In order to, to experience the benefits of what Jesus has come to do, you have to recognize your need, your sin. And that's the reason why Jesus points this man to the Ten Commandments. That's why he points this man to the law, because one of the major purposes of the law is to reveal our need for a Savior. This man thinks of the law solely as this list of things God wants me to do. And by the way, that is one of the purposes of the law. God gave us the law to be a list a set of rules that we follow, this is what you do to live a life that's honoring to God. And Jesus is not undoing that at all. He's affirming that. Jesus is not anti-law. But the problem is the man only thinks of the law as a list of things I do and I keep. And the man thinks of himself as having kept them all. And Jesus is trying to get the man to see there's another purpose of the law you're missing. One of the purposes of the law is to be a mirror that you look into and realize just how short you come up of keeping the law and just how in need you are of a Savior. 
And Jesus talks a lot like this in the Sermon on the Mount. You think of yourself as being a person who doesn't murder, and you think of yourself as being a person who keeps that law, but look, if you have hatred in your heart toward your brother, you're guilty. You've broken the law, Jesus says. You think of yourself as being a person who's never committed adultery, but if you've lusted after another woman, you're guilty. And here Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, you think of yourself as being a person who keeps the first parts of the commandments of the law. You know, no other gods, no idols. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This man would say, oh yeah, absolutely. I definitely love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. Absolutely I keep that commandment. I definitely have no other gods. I'm definitely not bowing down and worshiping other idols. Absolutely I keep those. And Jesus loves this man so much he gets personal with him and he basically says no you don't and I know you I'm your creator I know you and I'm going to try to help you see that you don't keep these commandments just like woman with, Jesus with the woman at the well what does he do he addresses her particular issues she's had five husbands and the man she's currently with is not her husband and Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue with her. He gets personal. So Jesus is getting personal with this rich young ruler. You think of yourself as being a person who keeps the first commandment? Okay. Go sell everything you have. Why does he say that? Because Jesus knows this is the man's God. This is the man's idol. The man loves his money. The man thinks about his money. Day and night, he thinks about his money. Jesus knows it. And Jesus is trying to help him see. I love you so much. I'm trying to help you see your need. You don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You love your money with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you need to come to realize your need and your need of a Savior. And that's why I'm here to rescue you from that. And by the way, you have to come to a point in your life where you recognize your need. You identify what is your God, what is your idol that you are going after. If Jesus were talking to you, what issue would he get personal with with you? With the woman, it's her relationships. With this man, it's his money. What is it with you? What would Jesus get personal with to try to get you to see you really don't love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? See, requirement number one, you've got to see your need, your sin. And it's personal. It's not just, I'm a sinner. It's, I have sinned against God, and here it is. This is my idol. This is my God that I tend to turn to for my identity, my happiness, my, my well-being. This is what I'm looking to. Have, have you identified yet your idol so you can uh, unend it and you can replace it? And that brings us to the second requirement. You've got to value Jesus more than anything else, in particular more than your idol, in particular more than your God. You've got to replace it with him. Why would we do that? First of all, because of who he is. He's God. And if for no other reason, you just do it because he's God. But, but he gives you a second reason. You do it because of what he's done for you. Not just who he is, but what he's done for you. And what has Jesus done for us? I just want to point out, Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. Jesus succeeds as the rich young ruler in a way that this rich young ruler doesn't. Think about it. Jesus is wealthy. He exists as God, with God, for eternity past in glory with all that belongs with that. He is full of wealth, the wealthiest person in the world in one sense. He's young, he's probably about 30, and he's the ruler. He's the king of heaven and earth. And yet when his father calls him to go on a mission, 
to set aside his wealth, to set aside his glory, to lay it aside and enter into poverty. He is willing to. He is the rich young ruler who was willing to become poor for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it like this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel. Jesus was rich, but he became poor. Why? So that we who are poor might become rich. He did it for us. He did it because he loved us. And Jesus loves this man in the text. Look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus has compassion on him. We think of Jesus putting up this wall and this hurdle and saying, you've got to cross this hurdle as being an act of not loving him, but it's actually an act of loving the man. Jesus is saying, I'm trying to get you to see that you have another God, you have another idol that you're going to with everything, thinking it can satisfy you, and it can't. And I'm trying to tell you how you can be truly rich. I'm trying to tell you how you can be truly wealthy. I'm trying to tell you how you can be satisfied with the wealth that only I can give you. And the man is unwilling. The man goes after the equivalent of a nickel. He holds on to the equivalent of a nickel and he gives up the equivalent of billions of dollars because he makes a wrong estimation, a wrong evaluation. He thinks his money is worth more than the potential wealth that Jesus can give him for an eternity. So I hope you see how difficult this is. It's so difficult. He's so common. That's so normal. That's the pattern that most people follow, the pattern of the rich young ruler, which says, surely there's something I can do. Surely there's something I can contribute. Surely my life is pretty well put together, and I maybe just need Jesus to kind of help me add on a little bit. See, the man knows something's off. He came to Jesus saying, what must I do? He knows there's a need. Everybody knows they have a need. Everybody knows they're missing something. But most people are like the rich young ruler, and they say, I'm missing something, but it's small. Like, I've pretty much got my life all together. I don't need to be undone. I don't need to be born again. I don't need to start from scratch. I've pretty well got my life together. I'm pretty moral. I got money. I'm, 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 I'm heading in the right direction. But maybe Jesus can just kind of help me just a little bit, sort of get me over that last hurdle so I can be confident that I'm good. That's the way most people think about salvation. I'm a pretty good person. I've got it pretty well together. Maybe if, if Jesus can just help me a li- along the way a little bit, and then I'll be in for sure. Do you see how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God? Because that's a natural mentality to have. It's so natural to think like that. It's so normal to think like that. It's, it's so difficult to, to come to Jesus in a saving way because of this. But at the same time, do you see how simple it is? Do you see how simple it is? All you have to do is realize you can't do it. All you have to do is come to Jesus and be willing to be undone before him. All you have to do is realize God has done everything for you that he demands of you. That's the the incredible message of the Christian faith. It's different from any other religion. Every other religion says, do these things, then you can be right with God. Do X, Y, and Z, and then you can have a right standing with God. Then you can enter heaven. Then you'll be cleaned up, and maybe God will accept you. Christianity says the opposite. You do nothing. 
God has done 100% of it for you. You just look to what he's done for you and trust it and believe it, and then you can be right with God. All you have to do is sit there and hear and believe, he who was rich became poor so that I who am poor can become wealthy. And you have to believe it and trust it, and you can enter eternal life. I hope you see this morning the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. Third, I want you to notice the difficulty and the simplicity of what we do in response to Jesus. So we're supposed to respond to him. We've already talked about this a little bit. We're supposed to respond to who Jesus is and what he's done. And I want you to see the response on one hand is challenging, and on the other hand, it's very simple. Look at what Jesus says to this man, verse 21. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. So Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. First of all, I want you to go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. I want to I just say one more time, Jesus doesn't call everybody to do this. The Bible doesn't call every single follower of Jesus to do this. So it is unique. But there's a principle here that we can't miss. Every single one of us is called to identify whatever it is we're going after. For this man, it was his money. Every one of us is called to identify what is my God? What is my idol? What is the thing I'm going after thinking, if I have this, I'll be happy. If I have this, I'll be satisfied. For many people, it is money. And I think that's why Jesus talks about money quite a bit. Right? And, and, and Jesus goes on and he says it's very difficult for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. So many people, it's money that consumes them. And by the way, it's not just a problem for wealthy people. People who don't have money can be consumed by, by the idea of money. People who don't have money often think, if I just had money, if I just had money, then... All my problems would go away. I'd be happy. I could do whatever I want. And life would be just right. And that's really, that's really how you identify your God, your idol. You ask the question, what are you longing for? What do you daydream about? What are you passionate about? What is the thing that you say, if I could just have this? Or you say, I've got it, and if I lost it, I would be absolutely undone. I couldn't go anymore. I couldn't keep going in life. Like what, what, is, what is it for you? For this man, it's his money. For you, it might be your money. For some people, it's the idea of a spouse. If I could just have the perfect husband, if I could just have the perfect wife. For some people, it's kids. If I could just have kids, and just perfect kids. For some people, it's health. If I could just have health or just keep my health. For some people, it's... It, it, notice these are all good things, by the way. Like none of these things we've mentioned so far is a bad thing. They're gifts from God. And, and, and to desire them and to appreciate them and to thank God for them is right. So in and of themselves, not bad things. But when turned into a little God or a little idol that you say, I have to have this or I can't go on, that's when it becomes the thing that's keeping you from God, right? Because that is your God. And, and he just, God just becomes a means to an end. He just becomes the one who gets you the thing you really deep down want. So it's, it's necessary, it's essential to identify your God, your idol, the thing that you think, if I just have it, life will be perfect. Or you think, if I just lose this, 
I can't, I can't keep going in life. This is what you call becoming a Christian. What I'm describing here is nothing strange, unique. It's not next-level Christianity. This is just bare-bones becoming a Christian. You know, other phrases are being born again, entering the kingdom of God, being justified, converting, coming to faith in Christ. That's all I'm talking about right now, becoming a Christian. It's, it's when you, you identify Jesus is more valuable than anything else, and I'm going to look to him and trust in him and, and, and say, if I have him, I have everything. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. See, how can I know? How, how can I trust if I have him, I'll have everything? How could I trust if I really gave everything away and had Jesus only? In the end, I'd really be wealthy and rich and have everything I want and need and be satisfied. And the answer is because that's why he came. Jesus came. The Bible says Jesus came for this purpose. He came because we were enslaved. He came because we, we were going after false idols and false gods. And Jesus came and loved us so much, he came to un, un end them for us. He came to say, these things can't satisfy you. They can't save you. I can. I love you so much, I came to show you I'm what you need. So quit going after these little false gods that can't do for you what you think they can do for you. They can't ultimately make you happy. They can't ultimately satisfy you. You're not created for them. You're created for me, and I came to open your eyes to see that. I love you so much, I'm trying to help you see. Don't go after these things. They'll ultimately lead to your death. They won't ultimately lead to your happiness. And come after me and value me more than any of them and find life and find riches and wealth way beyond your imagination. So this is the first part of following Jesus. Secondly, the next part is the call to come and actually follow him. Verse 21, he says, come and follow me. So I just want you to see this isn't about just pray a little prayer and then you can get in, right? So many times we think this is what it means to become a Christian. You just pray a prayer, then you're in, and then you can pretty much go do whatever you want. That, that's not even possibility. It's not even an option because the initial, there's an initial assessment that you're making. Jesus is more valuable than anything. If I have him, I have everything. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. You make that proper evaluation of Jesus. How could a person make that evaluation and a week later say, oh, I think I'm done with that. A month later, I don't think I'm interested anymore. That's not even a possibility. It's not even an option of a person who makes an authentic, genuine assessment evaluation and says, I realize none of these things satisfy me. Jesus alone will. I'm going after him with everything. A person who makes that assessment is a person who's a Christian, and that's a person who's going to believe that to the very end. And if you don't, then you prove that you never really believed it in the first place. Jesus was just a means to an end to get you what you really deep down wanted, which is really your God. Notice Peter asked the question in verse 28, what, what about those of us who have sacrificed to follow you? Like Peter's getting kind of worried. Wait a minute. If a wealthy person can't follow Jesus and inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, what about us? We've left our businesses. We've left our families. We're following you. Can we be confident? And Jesus says, yes. Verse 29, truly I say to you, there is not one of you who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. So Jesus is encouraging his disciples. Yes, you guys have sacrificed. You've left and you've proven your faith is real. 
You've left family. You've left your businesses. You've followed me. By the way, he says, you've left your children. That's kind of challenging. Or is, he, is he encouraging them for the fact that they've left their children? And I just want to point out, in the Greek, the word for children there is the word tekna, uh, which is the same word that Jesus uses back in verse 24 when he refers to the disciples as his children. It's not the word peta, where we get the word like pediatrician, which means young child, which is the word that Jesus uses back in verse 13 when he says, let the children come to me. So I don't think Jesus is saying, way to go, you've left young children at home to follow me. I don't think that's the point here. Perhaps he has in mind people who have left adult children. They've left their families. And, and a lot of missionaries from our church have done that. We have missionaries from our church who have left their adult children and grandchildren and they've gone overseas and they've sacrificed greatly. And I think Jesus is saying, those of you who have sacrificed for me, you, there, there will be a reward for you. And notice it's not just a future reward, it's a present reward. Verse 30, you will receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. So he says, hey, there's going to be rewards now for you. And what are the rewards? Basically, family. I think he's talking about the local church. You're going to have a local church with brothers and sisters and mothers and sons and daughters. Jesus has a very high view of the local church, by the way. And I would pause and ask you the question, do you view the local church like this? Like, do you see your church as this important, this vital? This is the family that God has given to me? This is my reward? Right? Do you view church that way? Jesus says, you'll be rewarded. Those of you who have left family, I'll give you family. Now, he's not, he's not giving them the health and wealth gospel because he says it'll come with persecutions. Like, it's going to be difficult. You're going to be persecuted, and they will be. And many of them will be killed for this. But he also mentions this future reward that they'll, that they'll receive. Look at verse 30. In the age to come, eternal life. The rich man forfeited this future reward. The rich man forfeited this eternal life Jesus is holding out for them. Verse 22, it says, he went away sad. I just want to point out, the man went away sad and he will be sad for an eternity. That's the tragedy of this story. He wasn't, he's not really satisfied in this life. He knew something was off. He knew he was missing something. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. Because he didn't have what he needed. He was unsatisfied. And he left Jesus unsatisfied, and he will be unsatisfied for the rest of his life and for an eternity. And this is the way most people are with following Jesus. It's too difficult. It involves too much sacrifice. And by the way, is following Jesus difficult? Yes, it is. It's not easy to follow Jesus. You really do have to love your enemy. That is nearly impossible. You really do have to be quick to forgive those who offend you, those who wrong you. You really do have to forgive them. That really is hard. It really is difficult following Jesus. It's not easy. It is hard. It really is hard to look out for the needs of others especially those who tend to be at the back of the line and can't sort of repay you. The last or first and the first or last. It really is hard and sacrificial to follow Jesus. It really is hard to say, what would King Jesus want me to do in this situation? I know what I want to do, but what would King Jesus have me to do in this circumstance? That really is hard. It's difficult. Following Jesus is difficult. And yet at the exact same time, 
It's really simple. I mean, he's God. How can you not do what God, your God, your creator tells you to do? How can you not? And he's not just God. He's God, and look at what he's done for you. He gave everything for you. He's the ultimate rich young ruler. He was willing to sacrifice it all for you. He gave that which was most valuable for you. And now he might call you to make a little sacrifice here and there. The little sacrifices we make are nothing compared to the sacrifice he made for us. And at some level, they almost become not even sacrifices at all. In fact, Hudson Taylor, famous missionary, one of the most influential missionaries, gave over 50 years of his life to serve in China, serve the Chinese people. And you read his biographies, he went through a lot. Uh, He lost children to sickness, malaria. Uh, He had his house burned down as a result of a riot, persecuted. I mean, it was textbook missionary sacrificing basically his life. And at at the end of 50 years of ministry in China, Hudson Taylor famously said, quote, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. That's the paradox of the Christian faith. The rich young ruler was not willing to make one sacrifice, and in the end it cost him everything. Hudson Taylor, on the other hand, was willing to sacrifice everything, and in the end he said, I didn't sacrifice anything. I never made a sacrifice. And my question for you this morning is, which of these two are you? Which of these two best describes you? My encouragement to you is don't be the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is unwilling to sacrifice, and in the end, he loses everything. Don't be the rich young ruler. Follow the example of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was willing to sacrifice everything. Why? Because he knew God had sacrificed everything for him in Christ. And he knew he had everything he needed in Christ. And in the end, even the sacrifices he made, he was able to say about them, I never even made a sacrifice. Which of these two will you be? Let me pray for us.